Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. We are in the season of Epiphany, the season where we celebrate the instances where Jesus manifests his glory. We, of course, on the Feast of Epiphany itself, begin this celebration, this acknowledgement of the manifestations of Jesus' glory with the story of the Magi coming from the East and recognizing Jesus as the King of the Jews, who none of the Jews had recognized because they weren't paying attention to the signs that God had provided them. But those who were paying attention, um, not having the full information, they had to go into Jerusalem and ask, where is the king supposed to be born? Um, Well, this then alerted those who had the information about where the king was supposed to be born to start paying attention to what God was doing around them. So the strange mixture of those paying attention but not having the information and those with the information not paying attention Uh, meets, and we have the story of the Magi, this extravagantly trimmed caravan of Easterners marching into Jerusalem and and asking where the king was, and then being sent on their way and coming into the crummy little town of Bethlehem. So they find Jesus, who is a small child at this point, and they offer him royal gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. And we talked about what those gifts symbolized when we uh, celebrated Epiphany, this was the first time Jesus' glory was realized, aside from those uh, who, who were there at his birth and the angels gave the heads up about. So that's, that's the first instance. And then we also celebrated on the octave of Epiphany, the baptism of Christ, in which he goes into the River Jordan and is baptized by his cousin John, And the voice of his father comes out of heaven, saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends on him and remains on him in the form of a dove. Now, this was uh, seen by John. We assume it was seen by those also there present at the same time. But we're not sure. There's only one person who actually testifies that this happened, and that's John. And we see this here in Uh, the Gospel of John, where John the Baptist says, um, first of all, he's he's out uh, baptizing, and it says that the next day John was standing there, and Jesus comes by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who I've been talking about, who I said, he's going to come after me and who ranks before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. And John bore witness to this. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, and who sent John the Baptist to baptize with water? God. He was called by God into this vocation. And God told him, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus came to John, and John baptized him, and he saw the Spirit descend on him and remain, he knew that this 
man that he had just baptized is the one who will baptize the world with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and borne witness to this, says John the Baptist, to those around him as Jesus is walking by. That's the one. Well, then the next day, so in the, in the narrative of John now, we, we have uh, on this day this happens, and then the next day. So we're counting days. This is interesting. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked, and Jesus was walking by again. You get the impression that Jesus is kind of just walking by John every day. So John can go, hey, that's him again. Remember, I, I pointed him out yesterday. There he is. There he is again. And this time, two of his disciples were listening. John said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples saw him, and they followed him. And they said, uh, hey, Rabbi. Jesus said, what are you seeking? And they said, um, John's been pointing you out. Where, where are you staying? Where can, we, uh, where can we find you? And he said to them, come and see. In other words, um, follow me. I've got some things to show you. So Jesus picks up a couple disciples. One of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And Andrew goes and finds his brother, uh, brother Peter. And he says, we found the one uh, that John the Baptist has been talking about. This is the Messiah. And so he brought, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. And so now Jesus is collecting disciples. He's got three. And then the narrative goes on and it says, The next day Jesus decided to go into Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city near Andrew and Peter. And Philip went and found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Nathanael finds Jesus and uh, Jesus says, Hey, so I, I know you. I, I saw you already. When did you see me? We haven't met. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And so this mysterious saying of Jesus, I saw you when you were alone um, meditating, when you were studying scripture, which was a habit of, of Jews to, to be under the fig tree studying scripture. Well, Jesus wasn't there. He wasn't present when Nathan was there. But Nathaniel said, Clearly, Rabbi, you, you are... You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And so now Jesus has, how many disciples are we up to? Several, a handful, okay? So we have the next day when John is baptizing. He sees Jesus, picks up a few disciples the next day. And now we're on the next day when Jesus goes into Galilee. And so if we're counting, we're on the third day. And John here in the gospel tells us on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. I think this is all connected. Jesus walking by John in the River Jordan, collecting disciples to himself, going into Cana in Galilee, and now we're on this day, this third day when Jesus has been doing this, and his mother and his brothers, his family, are there in Cana of Galilee, and they've been invited to a wedding. Well, Jesus now, in the beginning of his ministry, obviously he's already been baptized by John, because John said, I saw this happen. He's already gone into the desert, fasted for 40 days in preparation of the beginning of his ministry. He goes back to the Jordan area. He collects disciples and he goes into a city where he, his mother and family had been invited to a wedding. And it says that Jesus also was invited because they knew who he was. He was familiar to them and he wasn't invited as a, a great teacher or rabbi or a miracle worker. He was invited as one of the family of Mary, 
and the others. And so Jesus comes, and apparently his disciples were invited to, oh, you've got some, some friends they can, they can come to, that's fine. It was a big event, you know. So Jesus and this group of disciples now following him because they've heard great things, testimony about him from John, who they also had been following before. They're all at this wedding, and his mother realizes that the bride and groom are out of wine. Well, this is a tragic thing to happen at a big party when you've invited tons of people, obviously. It's a big celebration. Everyone's there, and if we've ever been to a wedding where there's no booze, we know what, what the crowd can, can be like when that happens. And so this was uh, something you didn't want to happen. And so, especially back then, uh, this was a big deal. And Mary knew that this was going to be a huge embarrassment, a giant faux pas for the uh, poor bride and groom who were supposed to be celebrating their marriage. And so when she tells Jesus this, he says, what, what does this have to do with me? Why, why, are you, why are you telling me this? He says, my hour has not yet come. This is uh, rendered many different ways in the English translations. Uh, most confusingly probably is in the King James, woman, what have I to do with thee? Um, it, it's been made a little more clear in some of our uh, new translations. What does this have to do with me, this situation? What, why are you telling me this, essentially, is what he's saying. And what this is, is a rebuke. He's actually rebuking his mother, but it's a very soft rebuke. This is what St. John Chrysostom tells us, that he's rebuking her not because she is out of line and asking him this. He's rebuking her because he isn't asked by those who are affected by this embarrassment directly. He's being asked by someone else who's noticing the situation. All of his other miracles, when someone is in need of healing, when someone uh, has a sick child, they are, he's approached by them directly. And so his, his miracles are in direct answer to those who need the help, right? In this case, that's not what happened. And St. John thinks that this is a, uh, a way for him to avoid um, overstepping, to, to um, meddle in business that isn't his own. He's got a, a real habit of making sure that even when uh, you know, the, the odd beggar calls out to him, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, or, or, or something like that, he'll look at him and say, do you want to be healed? He doesn't make the assumption. He says, do you want to be healed? In other words, What's the condition of your heart? Do you want me to do something for you? This is the way God works with us. That's not to say that it doesn't make sense. God won't act if we intercede on behalf of others. He does, obviously. What happens in the story? It's, it's not a surprise. We all, we all know the end. His mother is interceding on the behalf of others. But in his gentle rebuke, he points out that Honestly, the way that I act, what I'm here to do is to uh, act for those who look to me for their help. He also says something interesting about his hour. My hour is not yet come. Well, what does that mean? Is the Lord the creator of time and seasons bound by those time and seasons? No, of course he isn't. He isn't subject to a specific hour, as in, I can't act until my hour has arrived and, and you know, I'm still counting down. We're not there yet. 
That's not what this is about. He says, my hour has not yet come to indicate that there's a propriety in what I'm doing. There's a plan that, that, I'm, that I'm following here. It's my plan. It's according to my will. But again, we know the end of the story. He does act. Apparently his hour has come. But his hour has come precisely because he decides it has come. At the behest of his mother, who loves him and obviously loves uh, her, her neighbors, he, after gently rebuking her and noting that his hour has not yet come, nevertheless says, okay. And his mother, knowing him, knows in his answer, in his tone, in his reply, what this means, which is why she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. The humility of Mary here, even after a gentle rebuke about maybe maybe stepping in in a way that wasn't um, perfectly following after Christ, but stepping out in front just a little bit and, and uh, showing a, just the tiniest bit of boldness, Christ, recognizing her humility, answers her request. And so the servants fill up these giant pots with water. And what he doesn't do is fill them up with wine out of nothing. He doesn't create wine ex nihilo. He says, fill these up with water first. Why does he do that? Why couldn't he have just created wine in the pots? Well, of course he could have. He's, he's the God who created everything. But I think that would have been just a bit too far of a cognitive leap for those who would have understood what this miracle was, was you know, taking place oh my gosh, this man just created wine out of nothing. The, the, the propriety of turning water into wine is different in tone and feel and in acceptability than creating wine out of nothing. So Jesus tells them to fill up these things with water. He says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, which they do. When he tastes it, the master of the feast, he says, this is the most delicious wine that we've had yet at this whole party however long they've been partying. I think they, they tended to go on for days on end, you know, a, a week-long party for a marriage. And so at this point, who knows how long they've been partying and how much wine they've drunk. But when he tastes this, he's like, this is definitely the best so far. Normally, normally everybody, you know, serves their, uh, their, their good stuff up front and then everybody's a little too tipsy to care what they're drinking after that. And so uh, they, they roll out the the grade two stuff afterwards, but you have saved the really good stuff. And so the servants, knowing what had just happened, are amazed at this. Presumably the disciples also knew what happened because at the end of this, it says that his disciples believed in him because of this. And I have a feeling that pretty immediately the servants are telling others what just happened and then the word spreads. This was no secret. The, the cat is out of the bag at this point. This is why this is counted as the first of the signs and why it is recorded in the gospel and why his disciples believed in him and why his glory was manifested. I think in this season, it's all too easy to read these stories and in our heads think, yep, disciples, yep, Jesus, yep, wine. We've heard this, but in this season, following after Christmas and renewing our wonder at the incarnation of the uncreated God, 
now we see these stories of that same God, the one who was worshipped by Magi as a baby, walking around and saying and doing these things. And we have to stop when we're reading and remind ourselves, this is God. This isn't just a character in a story. This is God. What, what is he doing? Like, you know, when, when you're really surprised at, at someone walking around and doing something and, and you watch what they do closely as if to say, what is about to happen? I mean, I, I, have you ever been out and about and you see something crazy, someone driving down the wrong side of the road or something, and you're just, what? Like, your full attention is on what's going on because it's so out of the ordinary and crazy and anything could happen. What's going to happen? That's how we should be reading these stories. God is walking around as a man. That's not normal. <laughs> That's not normal up until this point. It's normal now in the sense that it is the central event in all of history. It's normal in that that's what creation obviously was moving toward from the very beginning, accepting its own creator as part of it. But for us in this narrative, it's not normal. This is a brand new thing. This is the first time Jesus manifested his glory through his own work. He was recognized for what he is just by a few, and his glory was manifest. He was baptized by someone else, and his father manifested the glory of his son, in whom he is well pleased, and the Spirit of God descends on him and shows him for something amazing. But this is the first time Jesus himself manifests his own glory, and he did it by making booze. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. He doesn't manifest his glory by transfiguring himself like he does to his disciples on the mountain. That's not the first way he manifests his glory. He doesn't do it by um, feeding 5,000 people at one time. He does it by secretly, in the dark, as it were, hidden in the pots. That's, that's when the water turns into wine. No one saw it. It was almost like a magic trick. But it was undeniable that it happened. And so God, as a man, manifests his glory in a very humble, earthly, community-oriented way. What he's showing us is that he cares about us, not just when we're in groups of 5,000, you know, following him in an aesthetic, aesthetic feat, uh, fasting in the desert. He does it not when we're literally having a mountaintop experience. He does it in an ordinary party, in an ordinary town among ordinary people. This is how God comes to us to show us, I'm here with you. I'm here to do things for you. Me, you, we're, we're at the same party. We're doing the same things. This is what life is about. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be instances and circumstances later in his life that will be more, I don't know, dramatic. But in this, the first part of the story there's very little drama. It's just everydayness. And I love that. I love it. Because my life is filled with very little drama on the whole. It's sprinkled here and there with bits of drama, but for the most part, the everydayness is what my life is. is that's the content of my life. That's like 99% of it, just the everydayness. And that's where God manifests his glory for us first.
And if we don't recognize God manifesting himself to us every day in our everydayness, then I think like the Jews who were surprised when the Magi showed up, we too are missing it. We have the information like the Jews did. It's here, but are we paying attention? That is what the season of Epiphany is about for us, to get us to pay attention. We have the info. We have to pay attention now. God is always here manifesting himself to us, and that is what this story tells us today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.